All right, welcome to the uh, Moving Forward podcast with uh, with me, your host, Corey Cottrell, and uh, my buddy, Rio Verdenier, uh, where we get together to talk about, uh, well, the first series is going to be all about every single one of uh, Andrew Yang's uh, 18 million policies, actually, it's about 110 right now, uh, from uh, uh, the perspective of, uh, you know, a dyed-in-the-wool uh, conservative uh, and just a rabid progressive. Uh, <laughs> uh, but today is, is extremely, extremely special. Uh, we have uh, Scott Satins in here to talk to us about uh, universal basic income. Um, I think, honestly, the first time that I heard about universal basic income was uh, from a podcast that, uh, uh, that I heard you on, Scott, um, and uh, you know, have just been fascinated with it ever since. I think it was about three years ago. Uh, and so just, man, thank you so much for, uh, for doing this for me um, and for uh, you know, really preaching the gospel about how ridiculously fantastic and transformative <laughs> this idea can be. I mean, it really, it can, right? Like, you know, there's oh, yeah. a reason why once people understand it, they get really, really excited about it. So Scott, maybe tell me a little bit about how you came to, uh, to, to hear about universal basic income and, and your sort of evolution to, uh, uh, to doing the, uh, the work that you're doing today. Yeah. So, uh, back in 2013, um, you know, there was a, uh, a conversation that hit the front page of, of Reddit, and that discussion was about how quickly technology is advancing and how like nobody is talking about it and nobody is understanding the ramifications of that and what it means. And so it was this really cool uh, discussion that brought together like a lot of Reddit. It was, uh, I can't remember if it made it towards the exact top or not, but that's where I got into it. And that was before, you know, the Oxford report came out. So really like nobody was talking about really just how many jobs are going to be eliminated by automation, like um, what kind of really amazing things was already like existing and coming down the pipe. So one of them that really caught my mind was that there were already self-driving trucks in the, the, Ryan's, uh, the mines of Rio Tinto. So like they already had these gigantic robotic trucks and uh, they wanted to automate their whole fleet by 2020. So it's like, I was thinking, like, here I am. I thought that I was following technology pretty well. You know, I've always been into technology. And I knew that we had just developed self-driving car technology, like the, the Google X contest had just been, you know, recently won. And uh, then this, like, a few years later, they were already commercializing this stuff. And we weren't talking about what where we were going. So that really got me thinking about this stuff. And um, that led me, I, I read to, uh, I read Mana by Marshall Brain, which was a really interesting uh, science fiction novella that kind of took it like a, a dystopia, utopia kind of look at the future, where because of technology, uh, we could go down this route, which is pretty much the route that we're going as far as like, you know, we're going to automate people out of jobs. And then, well, what are we going to do with them? Uh, well, you know, we can put them in like, you know, giant like dorms and, and feed them and, you know, just kind of keep them winning crimes. But uh, that's that. And it's really, you know, very dystopian kind of look. And uh, then the other half of the book was about like actually leveraging technology to look at this as a good thing. Like, yeah, let's automate as much stuff as we can. Let's expand. Let's use their resources as smartly as we can. And uh, that was more of like a resource-based economy kind of situation. And uh, just th that, the idea of like utilizing technology to either you know so that we're all worse off or that we're all better off that really appealed to me and that got me thinking you know so what how do we do that like what's like how do we get to this like science fictiony star trek utopian future 
instead of this dystopian Mad Max kind of horrendous nightmare of a future. And that's when I happened upon basic income. And I started looking into it and studying, you know, that I didn't realize that we were so close to something pretty similar to it in the 70s. I didn't realize that we had done experiments all over the U.S. and even Canada in the 70s. And I didn't, you know, didn't know like the more recent stuff that was happening across the world. And uh, the more I looked into it, I was just like, well, this is this is like that lever. Like if you're thinking of like a lever that can that can move the world on a fulcrum. You know, it's like this is that one thing that can really actually move the needle and like budge things in a, in a big way. Like, yeah, it's not going to solve everything, but it can solve like a lot of things to some degree in such a way that why would we not do this one thing that can be like so powerful for like all of humanity? So once I kind of realized, like reached that kind of conclusion, it's like, well, I just I can't spend my time doing anything else because this idea is just too important for like all of humanity. So that's what I started focusing on. So yeah, what tell tell everybody how you uh, how you set up what you do now? Like I see you now as a a, a self UBI funded UBI lobbyist of doom. <laughs> is that is that accurate? Yes, yeah. So I basically, I face the same challenges that everyone faced. Where you, there's some, you realize there's something that you really want to do, and yet you're prevented from doing it because you have to do other things in order to survive. So in my case, I kind of was just like an aha moment where where I figured, wait a second, like it was it was right after Patreon was launched, and I thought, okay, so this is the platform that I could actually potentially use to crowdfund a perpetual basic income that enables me to focus fully on basic income full time. And by doing that, not only would I free myself to actually focus on what I wanted to focus on and, and do that, but it, was all, it would also lend me authority in being able to talk about this by saying like, yeah, I'm actually living it. I know what it's like and I could learn more about what, it's, what it, having it is like instead of just like reading you know, academic stuff and articles and, and these kind of things. Like, what does it really feel like? What's it like having? And sure enough, like I did learn more about it by having it. And it's, it's really, it's changing the way that, that I think about things in a, in a way that, I, you know, you don't really read it, don't really consider like an academic kind of stuff. Um, I guess, so one example, just to give you an idea of that, is that because of essentially decoupled you know, my work for my income. And like, that's arguable. Like people would say, oh, well, you basically have a job doing this so that you're forced essentially to do this in order to keep this going. But it's like, if you look at it that way, that's one way to look at it. But another way is, is that it, money comes first. It's not coming afterwards, it comes first. And then I'm able to focus on what I want to focus on and I'm doing what I love. And so I'm not earning money for that. It's money is enabling me to do that. And so it, when, when money comes first, then you are able to focus on these things and you're able to make decisions that you couldn't otherwise make. Like you're able to say, okay, do I want to sell an article, you know, or do I want to re produce it and release it into like the public domain? Like, do I want to, is it important to me that I like lock this stuff up behind a paywall or artificial scarcity in order to get money off of it? Or is it more important that the information itself gets into people's brains and they're able to think about that? And so that I would rather, you know, it's something be read by 10 million people 
then get paid, you know, a thousand dollars for a thousand people to read it, you know? Yep. So it's, it's really, it's made me think differently even about intellectual property and, you know, just the idea of, of selling stuff, you know, instead of producing it and, and putting it out there for free. Like it's really, it's very freeing to be able to do stuff for free and still be able to pay the bills. And, and I think that right. a lot of people, I think there'll be a shift even in society of a lot more people doing that, that they're able to say, wait a second, I don't have to sell stuff anymore. So maybe I don't want to like how much more, you know, imagine like the difference in art that can be done when someone is creating something and it's basically a gift to the world saying like, I created this and I feel a passion about it and I think it's beautiful and I think it's art, you know, I think this is art and I don't worry about selling it to someone. I'm not, I didn't create it because someone I thought might want to buy it because they would like it. You know, it's more like intrinsically motivated artistic kind of creation. Right. That's kind of powerful to think about as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that that's, I, I, I like the fact that you frame it as, as, um, you know, almost an intrinsic emotional shift. Uh, you know, we talked to, you know, in, in our, uh, uh, sort of initial chat about uh, the freedom to do it. And, um, you know, we talk about, you know, ending the stigma and we talk about, you know, the welfare cliff, we talk about all these sort of economic realities. Um, but I, I really do. I think a lot about the, the, how, how much difference there would be in people's lives when they can wake up in the morning and choose just yeah. pick, right. Going back to freedom, right? Like that's, we're all, we're all, you know, supposed to be, uh, uh, you know, freedom cheerleaders, right? Like just being free. Cause I, you know, as a, as a, you know, musician, I, I definitely, uh, uh, um, you know, resonate a lot with, with everything that you were just saying, uh, sort of my, my job for the last 20 years or whatever, like the, the idea that you could just do that, uh, is, is intense. Like it really, it, it can shape, change your uh, entire perspective on the whole thing. Even, even if you had a UBI though, Corey, if I wanted you to play at a private party of mine, presumably I'd have to make it worth your while. It's I'm expensive. I'm but I have to say, I mean, Scott's right. right. The upper class has had the freedom to do things to contribute to society and in ways that weren't necessarily motivated by making money. That's been true since the beginning of civilization. And a lot of the greatest achievements, intellectual and artistic achievements that have been made were actually made by people who were not employed to do it, but they were motivated by passion and desire and had the fortunately the the means to do it because they didn't have to slave away for for a living so um yeah no i mean if we can move toward a future where more people have that luxury or even make it so that it's not a luxury anymore i i i actually think we would have more productivity not less yeah exactly. yeah capitalism won't go away either like i i still have to pay you for a private concert <laughs> right right but you wouldn't have to yeah but you might have yes, to pay um, it, you'll do it for me but like if i weren't your buddy well, and this thing, like I put out, I put out metric tons of content all day, every day. And, and, uh, you know, the, the first thought was not, uh, that I had to get uh, paid for it. Right. Like that, that, you know, I'm doing it because I have to do it. I feel compelled to do it. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, we're both in a position where we can make this podcast. If it never makes any money, we're still going to do it. Right. Like that I think is, is, is kind of epic. But just get Yang elected. That'll, I'll count that as payment. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. No, it's a, it's a, it's a big investment. Right. Yeah. Very big ROI. Yeah, exactly. The ROI, the ROI is intense. Uh, so, you know, Scott, wh- when was the first time that you were heard about uh, uh, Andrew Yang and, and his candidacy? And did he explicitly read your email before coming up with the freedom to do it then? 
No, no. So uh, Andrew and I uh, met for the first time back in, I think it was uh, 2015, I, I believe. And um, it was through the Economic Security Project where they were just starting up and were starting up um, like the first like gatherings of people. And um, I, I, I met him a, a few times since. And um, so I already knew him and we were already friends. And, um, you know, he even talked to me about this before he started his campaign. You know, he came into New Orleans and we sat down and it's like, hey, I'm thinking about, you know, uh, uh, what do you think that I could, I could do that would like have the most impact? And, um, and do you think like running for president's a good idea? I was like, uh, yeah, that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like if you're willing to do that, then absolutely, yes, that would be amazing. Oh, and that oh, is a sacrifice too, because boy, I mean, yeah, yeah. No, my my wife actually told me if I ever ran for office, she would divorce me. I mean, it's really <laughs> hard. Like, right. She drew that under public, line. the public eye like that is not a good. It's not fun. Yeah. 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 So, it was, so it's very excited from the beginning. Yeah, that that uh, that's intense. And, you know, we've talked about this a little bit before as well. Like even even if. Um, you know, Yang doesn't, uh, doesn't win the primary, uh, cause I think, I think he would come to straight clean up in the general. Um, you know, the, the, I have, again, well, I mean, this podcast got started, um, conservative friends that I've been telling about UBI for fricking three years, suddenly like they listen to the fricking Rogan, uh, the, the, the Rogan episode and yeah. they're back and like, Oh no, dude, the freedom dividend makes total sense. I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> it was crazy. Um, right, yeah. so, you know, it's, it's really, you know, I think it, I think there's been an order of magnitude or more shift already, uh, you know, and it's building off all the work that you've done and, and laying the groundwork. Like watching you work on Twitter is awesome, man. I mean, it, like it's it's you know you've obviously been building up to this for uh, for a while as well. Um, so I guess you know I want to take it in a couple of different directions, but I, you know, as as the moving forward podcast, um, what do you think? Do you have any advice for us on how we can move forward? Um, and, and really, you know, move this, this, uh, uh, this idea forward. You mean like a, a, as a podcast or you mean like as a, like a media strategy or like, uh, what kind of guests and topics to cover? Like, yes. um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it seems like, like it's kind of, kind of open, kind of, kind of, kind of open-ended, right? Like it, any, anything that, you know, uh, uh, um, and again, there might not necessarily be an easy answer to this question and we can, uh, you know, uh, come back to it. But yeah, if you have any, any advice for us at all on, on how we might be able to move the needle as a media project. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, I, I think just the, the, your idea itself of, of focusing on, you know, not left, not right by having both sides. And, um, I think it's a great start. Um, you know, this, I've been pushing that from, from the beginning and I, I saw this from the beginning too, where, you know, just one of the first things I did was become the moderator, the basic income subreddit and being able to, to like see like arguments for both sides. Like you'd have like uh, socialists putting like socialist stuff up and capitalists putting capitalist stuff up and, and even like the vice versa, um, you know, having like anti UBI pieces from the socialists and anti UBI pieces from the capitalists and, and it was I, it was really neat seeing this environment be created where people were were talking that you were, weren't previously talking, and then see that this was already opening up to other discussions, uh, like at a, at a larger scale too, or, or more personal scale. 
um, I thought this was really neat where I saw uh, like Andy Stern and Charles Murray kind of team up and, and they had did multiple events together. And through that, I mean, these are as a union leader and like a, a extreme conservative guy who was like very hated on the left. And, uh, you know, you could say the same thing about Andy Stern just being this, you know, giant union leader uh, on the left, being like very disliked on the right um, for being a union leader. But yet they like formed a friendship and they were able to discuss other things, you know. Right. And uh, I, I think that there's something very valuable about that where like it's it's kind of an unspoken or, or underappreciated kind of effect of the basic income discussion itself being not left, not right, is that you can actually start talking about other things, that things that were not previously possible because you're both in your own filter bubbles and you're just like, you know, your ears are plugged and you're humming like, la, 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 I don't hear you. And uh, it, it, I did some research into this too when I, when I first got into this, to seeing that like there are like, psychological like studies of saying all right well how do you get people who disagree with each other to start like talking and part of it like there's a strategy where it says okay one of the things you can do is just personalize your discussion and just talk about personal things like what's your favorite food what kind of tv do you like you know it's like oh my favorite food is tacos you know like oh i love tacos too and then suddenly it's like there's a bond there because you both like tacos and yep. And then you can start, like, you start thinking of the other person as a human being, just like you are, instead of, like, the other tribal side, you know, the yep. other team. Andrew, Andrew Yang was uh, Corey and Mai's taco. That, you yeah. literally <laughs> stole that. I literally, the next words out of my face were hashtag Andrew Yang is our taco. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I, my advice, I guess, would I would love to see um, – you know, more expanding out from the basic income discussion even, and just, you know, you can touch upon this because basic income touches on so many things. Yep. But because of that, you can also talk about other things as well. And that I think would be really fascinating to see, you know, both sides talking about, um, you know, other things as well. Whereas, and you can even say, oh, well, I would have never discussed this before. And, right. you know, now we can. So that, that would be really that, neat. That actually happened to us, huh, Corey? Because actually it's happened to us multiple times, but I was yeah. talking about, you know, the benefits of states' rights and people voting with their feet. And Corey said, well, that's easy for you to say because you can afford to move. And then he thought about it and he's like, oh my God, with UBI, that would actually work, wouldn't it? Right, like, it, like honestly, yeah. with, as, with the UBI creating the kind of uh, uh, floor that it would have the capacity to create, suddenly conservative arguments would actually make sense for, you know, most humans. Um, as as opposed to, to 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 being something that's kind of disconnected from uh, uh, the people that need it most, right? The, the the people where income inequality is is, is causing uh, huge problems. But that's like so. The whole first series, obviously, we're we're talking about the freedom dividend right now. Um, what we're really doing is we're going to go through every single one of Yang's policy proposals mm -hmm. uh, as, as to really expand that thing. And I'm sure we've yeah. talked about the freedom dividend every time because you know that that the combination of the freedom dividend plus any other policy usually means that that policy is going to do better, right? Like just as a as a as a general idea. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm excited to hear you say that. That's that's sort of the the, the um, freedom dim, freedom dividend power up effect. <laughs> yeah, that's really it's like it's like uh, uh, adding spice to you know anything. Or like yeah, and, and so it, there's something really interesting there too, like you said, as far as, um, and I, I would apply that to both sides where you know, there's a lot of conservative uh, beliefs that are held pretty closely 
and but there's a lot of magical thinking involved too where it says like you know like the theory and philosophy can be solid but like as far as like it being accurate according to like on the ground conditions and stuff it's just not and uh, you know same thing could be said on, on the left like when you say you know the left will say well we let's we got to get make sure that college is available to everybody you know like the school is that we got to make sure universal education is available and that's like our main focus and the same thing with healthcare like you got to make sure that healthcare is the is the focus and it's like well okay so if you're focusing on that as being primary then and and income is such a large portion of both of those things you know it, it, i i've uh, like one stat i found was that um you know, it was estimated that that 60% of like health outcomes are related to your your income. Yep. And so this is it's such a huge component and same thing in education where you can get like all the free school that you want and you can just be do terrible at it because you're 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 starving, you're thinking about food during the day and your home environment is abusive and terrible and because they're stressed out over money and you just can't focus on your school, you can't do that. So then that great, you have all this free stuff, free education, but it doesn't work because you're just, you can't focus. Same thing with healthcare, you know, it's great. All this free, you know, say cancer treatment and, and heart attack treatment and, you know, all these treatments after the fact instead of avoiding all this stuff upstream. So it's just, it's unrealistic to focus on these things and just say, well, let's, let's fix these problems by just throwing money at education and healthcare Instead of saying no, these program these these problems exist much farther upstream. We that's where it needs to be fixed. This is that's where it makes sense. Yeah. So it's it's like that. This is an issue on both sides, where both the left and the right are like not really focusing on like the the, the bottom like foundational kind of stuff, and they're just hoping to fix these things otherwise. And not the things are bad. It's just you're missing out on like the core like stuff. Uh, yeah, Maslow's hierarchy of of needs, right? Yeah, and and uh, as Yang likes to point out, um, you know, not everybody necessarily wants to go to a four year university. Some people might prefer to, you know, learn how to, you know, be a plumber. Um, and in fact, jobs like plumbers might be more secure than jobs like lawyers, as it turns out. So, yep. you know, it, there is there is no fix all solution. But the closest thing to it would be just giving people more money because people have different priorities. And the wonderful thing about money is whatever your priorities are, it helps you. It increases your odds of being able to achieve it. Yeah. Yeah. There's this great uh, give directly graphic they put, that they put together where I can't remember just the number of people like from their, the recipients of the give directly, you know, the UBI experiment going on in Kenya right now where they, they broke up the, um, the distribution of like what people were using the money on. And it looks like a fingerprint kind of thing to me because like every single person is different and they're all using the amount of money for various amounts of different things. There, it, there's so much, it's completely unique. Like every single person is different from the next person. And like something like that just speaks so clearly, I feel, as that everyone is best at making their own decisions. And as soon as you're centralizing this and saying that, you know, the government is the right, well, this amount should go to food and this amount should go to healthcare and this amount should go to clothing, you know, and this kind of thing. It's always going to be inaccurate. It's always going to be just not effective for everybody because it's no one want, no one person agrees on what their needs are to the same degree as everyone else. Everyone's different. 
my my wife always likes to point out apparently there she she reads a, she reads a lot and she always has these amazing anecdotes one thing she likes to point out is that originally airplanes were designed for quote the average person until they realized that what they determined as the average was basically like the median or whatever right of everything so like the median arm length the median leg right. length etc what they realized is that there isn't a single person in the world who is the average person that person doesn't exist it's a construct <laughs> then the average person is an individual <laughs> yeah no except in idiocracy where the main character was the most average person that they could find in everything <laughs> oh idiocracy that just it hits far too close to home these days um <clears throat> so um yeah i guess like Thinking in terms of, uh, and, and seriously, thank you for the, the advice from before. I'm still kind of mauling all that stuff over and it's, it's, it's kind of validating, uh, you know, how we're doing this and how we're thinking about it, which is fantastic. Um, what would you say are the biggest challenges? Uh, you know, that, like I know you field questions about this stuff all day, every day, right? Like what, what, what is like the one or two uh, uh, criticisms of, uh, um, of UBI or the freedom dividend that kind of stick the most that are the most challenging to, uh, to kind of overcome or just the most like your, or the ones that are the most popular that we're just going to have the easiest time smacking down. Okay. So I would say, um, you know, compare like Yang's freedom dividend kind of plan and, and including, you know, that you others as well that, that tie into this, like you know, carbon dividends is part of it. The financial trans transaction tax is part of it. And, and you, people can read, the, my own plan that I published, uh, you know, previously back in like 2015, and you'll see that it's very similar. So he, he, he got a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of same thinking there. And so I really agree, you know, with, with a lot of the way that, that he's doing it. Um, but of course there are things that, that I think that he still could improve upon. And I, I still hope that he does make those improvements. Um, and even if he doesn't, it, I would push for those improvements, you know, like in an actual bill, you know, and or separately. So like my, my main thing is saying like a child allowance, um, you know, if we want to scale uh, per household and, you know, most economists agree with this, you know, that you need to have that, that child component. And most of the tests that have been done like for UBI in like, you know, India and Namibia and other, and even in the experiments that we did here in the US and Canada, like all of this scaled uh, by household size. So it, it, that's, that's an important component that I think that you know, he doesn't need to call it, he doesn't need to expand the basic income uh, and say like it's basic income for kids by providing, you know, $333 per month. Um, but he could just add it, you know, as like n policy number 115 or whatever, saying yeah. I support the, a child allowance. Uh, you know, it could be three hundred dollars, you know, three hundred fifty or, or whatever. But you know, the uh, the the Brown proposal is something that Democrats are rallying behind. Uh, the what's it? The Brown Shared Plan, which was um, it's almost a fully universal uh, child allowance, and you know that's building support, and it's been like co-sponsored by like you know Bernie and and. Um, uh, I think Kamala Harris may have co-sponsored it too and Elizabeth Warren. And, and so it's just, it's, it's a popularly democratic policy and it could be sold um, to conservatives as being, it, it totally could be mostly revenue neutral. Again, it's saying that we're not talking about building this on top of it. We're saying that instead of an EITC that scales by household, instead of um, food stamps that scale by household, instead of um, WIC, you know, for, 
Um, you know, there's a lot of these things that are essentially child programs. And this also includes tax credits, uh, not only the EITC and the CTC, but also, you know, just your child deduction that you get a dependent deduction on your taxes for right. the child. So we need to reform all of that together and just say, all right, let's neutralize that out. And if we just think of a flat amount to everyone in cash, then that would just be far much far better than having all this whole slew of programs require all this bureaucracy, you know, and everything. It's the same, it's the same thinking behind the basic income. And um, that would be a huge improvement and would reduce poverty and inequality even further than Yang's existing plan. And so that's one thing that I think is, is important, uh, especially because, you know, on the other side of this, the things that, um, that, that the detractors will focus on is saying that, well, you know, it, if you're looking at say single parents with um, you know two kids or something, mm-hmm. and it, for the most part they're going to need to not choose the dividend. They're going to need to continue on with their existing uh, welfare programs. And so the thinking there is that well you know they're no worse off, but they're not benefiting from this lack of conditions. Um, you know they're still having to go through all these hoops. The means testing stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it. That's really, uh, we need to unconditionalize all this stuff at the bottom to create a, a full floor. And so I like the way that, that Yang's, you know, it, it's, it's smart to give an either or uh, so that it gives people the choice, you know, of saying that I want to, to keep going, you know, what I'm, what I'm doing and, you know, that's their choice. But how much of a choice is it really if they're, you know, choosing to go down you know, if they would be going from $2,000 to $1,000 or something like that. Right. Kids. And again, um, that's the thing. And you, you even saw part of this too as an effect in like the Finland experiment where they designed the experiment um, and the experimenters who, who designed it wanted to include a child component and the politicians didn't want to do that. So they didn't include that. And then it kind of like, I wouldn't say it ruined the experiment, but it drastically change the experiment so that um, a significant portion of the population needed to continue going through this you know conditional benefit system which meant that the test itself was really more about a test of reducing the amount of conditions from like you know a hundred percent to like you know 80 it was like 82 or 83 or 84 percent something like that so like you slightly reduce the conditions and therefore you slightly saw effects from that and so if, we're, if we really want to receive the full impact of an unconditional basic income, then it needs to be across everybody, and that includes kids. And then you also wouldn't have you know, these negative effects that you could potentially see and also have designed around where you have to say, okay, well, we don't want the people, we don't want a single parent getting $1,500 a month to uh, be impacted by the 10% VAT. Uh, because their their taxes are going to go up essentially through consumption, but it's not going to be uh, you know compensated for by the basic income because they're not getting it. So they're going to be taking a hit. And then of course you can either say, all right, we'll we'll have to boost those benefits slightly to neutralize that effect, or we're going to have to essentially reduce what the VAT is taxing, which would reduce the revenue from the VAT and add further complications to that. So it's like you, you, you got to compensate for that in some way. And it just right. makes far more sense to just go in the same logic. And let's like, yeah, let's reform the way we do child benefits as well. 
and provide that allowance. So that's what I think is a is an important improvement that I still think he he I hope that he gets toward, that he hopes that he uh, takes up. But that's also like without that, it's it's one of the better arguments um, for people to have, and it's not a good argument in general. Like it's still better than your other plans. Like if you're comparing this right. to like Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and all these others. Well, uh, Yang's plan will still reduce poverty and it will reach those 13 million people that are not part of the existing safety net that are completely falling through the holes. They're in poverty. They're getting nothing. Only Yang sees them. And so that's the part that a lot of the detractors ignore because usually you're on the left and you don't want to, to admit that the programs that are conditional do have all these holes and have all these failures. Wow. Okay. That's really interesting. Um, I feel like I want to ask you a question and weigh in there for a second as the conservative <laughs> on the show. Uh, yeah, no, actually, I, one thing I like about it is that it's not, it doesn't, it isn't based on, on how many children people have. Um, as you are, I'm sure this doesn't surprise you, Scott, but you know, a lot of conservatives don't like that because they feel like it basically encourages irresponsible behavior. Um, so my, my wife and I is, uh, you know, very comfortable upper middle class people have chosen not to have a kid because we feel like we can't afford to properly educate and clothe them and ensure that they're going to have a trust that make sure they're okay, even if like, you know, all the jobs get automated away or whatever, right? So it, why, why, why when, um, you know, some responsible middle class people are, are choosing not to have kids, is, is it really good, especially when jobs are going to be going away, to encourage people to grow the population irresponsibly? Sure. So you can look at it that way. Um, but also then if you look at like the, the evidence from like, you know, child allowances are very common across the world. And it, like over and over again, you just don't see much of an impact at all on fertility rates. And okay, in that's fact, interesting. you can't see these in the other direction. So there are some uh, results showing that this is, doesn't, that this does decrease. And if you look at like child fertility rates by income, it's a really interesting curve. It's like a U. So like at the, at the, very bottom, the, your fertility rates are higher because of, say, low income. And then as you gain income, then you have fewer kids. And then when you have a lot of income, then suddenly you're able to have more kids. So this is that U effect. And if you compare that to the distributional impact of a freedom dividend uh, paid for the 10% VAT so that you know, you're, you're the most of the net increases at the bottom, and then you've got a net decrease at the top, then you're gonna slightly flatten that U, theoretically, so that you are gonna, I would expect a slightly lower impact overall on fertility rates potentially, but it would be a very small impact. Okay, you and, actually, you know, I'm sorry, I'm just gonna say like, you actually convinced me there. I mean, I, I, one thing we do on the <laughs> show is we don't, we don't argue about facts, that's a waste of time. Right. Um, but you know, just uh, from a, a philosophical perspective, wouldn't it be better than to just have a higher UBI for everybody and still not tie it to children? Because, I mean, it seems like, I mean, yeah, the, the higher their income is, the, the fewer kids they're going to have up, up to a point, as you said. I, I, I think that's absolutely true. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not anti-children. I think people should have sure. children. I, I just think like, why not, why not just have a higher UBI in, in, instead? Okay, so a couple of things, too, I want to bring up. Um, so the Alaska dividend is a great example of, of it's fully universal. Everyone gets it. And every kid gets it. And every kid gets the same amount, even. So if you look at a household of, of five people, um, it's not just the parents getting, say, $2,000 each. You know, the kids get it, too. And that's part of the reason, I think, why it's been so popular. I think if they had 
if they have designed it from the beginning and said, all right, well, let's not make this universal and instead let's only give it to adults, then we can figure out, you know, the adults will be a higher amount and, you know, but then if you do that, you're going to have a, a, essentially a regressive impact on families where it's going to be benefiting, you know, single you know, childless adults more than families. And so I think that even like most of our programs in the U.S., it's all designed around households and families. Like you, you, it's not a popular plan to say, all right, I'm going to pass a policy that, that holds singles up higher than, than families. Well, so I can even, see how that would be persuasive. On <laughs> I, you might get some kickback <laughs> on the right. Well, but that's, it's, it's so funny too, because there's a lot of, um, you know, there's, there's, on the right, there's some really confusing stuff I see where, you know, it's like it's it's for family and, and, and not for family, where it's like, um, you know, what is it recently that the so-and-so was in, like, the Congress and he made, like, that ridiculous presentation about, like, the Green New Deal that even included, like, a tauntaun. Oh, <laughs> I don't know if you remember that one. Yep. And, uh, like, he ended it by saying, like, oh. the real solution is to have kids. You know, it's, like, families. And, and this that was a very conservative viewpoint to saying we need more kids. And yeah. even Paul Ryan said that, too, where, like, he said, I'm doing my part. Like, I had I had kids. And it's, like, you, you push this, this family unit thing. And also, like, you push the even, like, you're pushing, um, you know, that abortion is bad. So abortion is bad. And if, if abortion is bad, of course, then you're saying you don't want as many kids and because you would want them to have kids, uh, you know, if the, the, you want to give them that choice. And you, again, that's something you see tied to income as well, where you, you see that if, like a, if you really wanted to reduce abortions, then you would make sure that parenting was an actual choice. You know, that, and that, that means people could afford to have those kids. So on the one hand, you're saying that, that, you know, we don't want more kids. And, but on the other hand, you're saying we don't want abortions. But if you were actually made parenting affordable, then you would drastically reduce abortions. And yeah, I mean, a lot of, a lot of conservatives, <laughs> including me, are, are pro-choice. Uh, yeah, I mean, on the grounds that actually poverty and crime are lower uh, when abortion is legal. So, but yeah, yeah no, I mean, that you're right. They're, the same thing happens on the left. I mean, but the, the Republicans and Democrats are built, made up of these coalitions that are not like natural allies all the time. It's so, not always consistent. Yeah. Let, me, let me ask you this, direct this at Rio. Um, let's say, just like, because we know that there's going to be a whole lot of benefits for you as a single, as a single couple, right? Um, to having kids that are better off, better educated, happier, yada, 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 right? Like we talk about the civilization part of it. We talk about the, the, the stigma uh, 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 that going around, you know, the fact that, you know, we want to lift the floor for, for literally everyone, right? Just as, it, as an argument, if I were to increase the VAT by 1% and also give every single kid $333, would you say yes to that? Well, I mean, uh, I'll put it this way. Um, I would not stop supporting Yang's policy just because he added that detail okay fair enough yeah and so again too this is a very much a revenue neutral thing like we we really do have if you were to just totally revenue neutralize it and just give a cash amount with stop means testing any taxes and you know just convert all these programs that we're using and can and do tax reforms so that you're not doing a child deduction and you're just giving cash then the amount i i think would be around like um like 150 200 something dollars per month 
Yeah, and, and so in terms of simplifying the bureaucracy, that is yeah. very appealing to conservatives, actually. That's, that's, that's a good thing, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you just the fact that it's revenue neutral and we're going to this point where, uh, you know, well, and, and again, it could be revenue neutral, but the second that it becomes part of a freedom dividend, as an example, we talk about this all the time. Once, you know, if automation goes down the road that, Scott, you and I think that it will inevitably go where we're automating things away way faster than we could give human beings, you know, subsistence jobs uh, doing whatever, right? Like, like that's going to be a serious problem. You can then tie uh, uh, the VAT tax or an increase of the VAT tax or whatever we need to do to adding more money to the freedom dividend, right? Which means that, yeah. We've taken uh, the, 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 the child situation away from that, away from sort of even the stigma of all that, the means testing, the bureaucracy, as Rio brings up right, right, rightly, um, and, and then it can actually scale with this thing. And again, I, I always think about it exactly. I'm, I love the fact that you brought up the Star Trek thing. To me, this is, this is the lever that gets us on the path that leads us towards that, that level of hyperabundance uh, that, that, that is possible, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, all of this is about trying to figure out what's the best way, what's the most effective thing we can do, like in the moment, right now, economically and politically. And then how do we get to this much better future? Um, you know, what kind of things we need to build into the system? What do we have to continue fighting for after we get some kind of basic income set up? Uh, I think the, 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 the biggest thing is, is I want to to try to make sure that people see and i think it helps too seeing it as a freedom dividend and like seeing it as a tech check and if we see that productivity continues to rise then of course the freedom dividend should rise with productivity mm -hmm. like so i can see this as and this is this is tricky too because again yang is he's right about wanting to to measure things differently than just gdp and so it, it'll be it, we'll have to like look at uh, like a more cohesive, expansive picture as to like what is productivity really like, what what is all of this that we're that we're creating together, and therefore, um, when I say that I would like to tie the freedom dividend, you know, to GDP per capita, so that as GDP per mm -hmm. capita rises, then the freedom dividend rises. Then part of this too is figuring out well, is GDP the proper measurement, you know, to figure out individual productivity in society. And so, you know, what do we uh, couple the 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 freedom dividend to uh, in order to properly increase, you know, with our collective uh, ability to to generate more um, uh, wealth and, and productivity and, you know, just do more with less in general. Yeah. Well, and on the topic of, uh, you know, being pro-family, uh, yeah, I, I, something else conservatives like about this is that it makes it possible to have more um, households with only one working parent. You can have stay-at-home parents um, if, you know, they have an extra $2,000 a month. Um, maybe both of them don't have to work in order to maintain a middle-class lifestyle, and that's definitely good for kids. Yeah, yeah. And also, I, I think another component of this as well is is the ability to purchase time. So, you know, if you can, if you can create the situation where, you know, essentially, uh, you can look at two parents. So within the household, then say, um, you know, both parents could work uh, three or four days per week instead. And therefore they're each watching their own kid. And, and so the kid is still being raised by the parents, but each is working less in order to do that. Well, then also you're looking at, you know, better productivity uh, you're, because you know, right. you that as people work less, um, they're able to do more, you know, with the sewer hours. And of course, it's great that kids will be raised by their actual parents instead of just some 
someone getting paid for it that may or may not like right you know, give a shit instead, about of, instead of uncle sam paying for their nanny yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's it's just it's so weird that we say that it's like work if if someone else is paid to watch your kid but it not work if you don't i mean obviously you're providing a benefit um to your family and also society itself and i've i've written i've argued about this in one of my uh, pieces as well saying that effectively this is a Bogovian subsidy and so if you look at Bogovian taxes and Bogovian subsidies it's this idea that there are market failures where as far as a Bogovian tax goes the market is not calculating the full cost of this through the externalities and so you have to add artificially add this cost to it in order to correctly price those externalities into the cost and a Bogovian subsidy is looking at the opposite saying that there are things that you benefit from that you're not paying for and so we should actually encourage those things and recognize them and so like vaccines would be an example where you want to where because of the herd effect you are receiving this benefit without paying for it so we should encourage that and so when you look at say people raising their own kids um and you know in loving environments where they really are caring about that and raising better kids that's a benefit to everybody and it's also lowering the price of, say, childcare itself, because there's less of a demand for paid workers doing that. So instead hmm. of paying essentially, you know, the current cost is, let's say, $4,000 per, um, let's say $2,000 per month on childcare for a family. Well, imagine if there were fewer workers available to do that. And because there was a higher demand for that, because everyone was getting paid to watch each other's kids, then there would be that, you know, you, if there were a few workers available, it would cost $4,000 or $5,000 or something. So essentially, everyone paying for childcare is paying less than they would otherwise, because people, some people are watching their own kids for hmm. free. And I think that's important to, to, to bring into this, because you're saying that, you know, not only is this valuable work that people are doing and it's not being recognized but it's like people are benefiting from that they're, they're and they're not paying for it and that's that should be something where you should be more okay with paying increased taxes to actually make that possible because then even more people could do that same thing and even bring their prices down further and you would benefit further in so many ways and so it's really interesting to look at this from a Pogovian subsidy angle uh, as well all right. It, yep. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it, you know, we're talking about, we're talking about having kids. Just the, the only thing that really, well, not the only thing, there was a few, but uh, you know, my, uh, uh, my brother and his wife are, uh, uh, you know, they just moved down here from, uh, from Canada. Uh, they're really feeling the sting of not having universal healthcare. That's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, they're, they're both uh, working. My brother's working 60 hours a week. You know, uh, his wife was working uh, 40 plus hours a week. She spends 35 of her hours taking care of the kids childcare. Like it's like, talk about being penalized to go to work, right there. You know, it, it is just North of being pointless for her to have a job, uh, mm. which, uh, which is, which is really, really insane to me. Um, and again, like, you know, the, the freedom dividend for them, like it'd be really, my wife and I talk about, you know, we were out kayaking one day and like, if the freedom dividend happened, we're like, we probably just like screw off and like get a camper and do, do whatever the hell we wanted. Right. Um, but the amount of stress that it would relieve for my brother's family is literally incalculable. 
Like yeah. they, they, you know, he is stressed out 24 hours a day, every single day, all the time. You know, he's got uh, uh, two kids that are, uh, you know, five and uh, uh, four and one 13 year old that apparently is turning into a, a some form of demon, uh, which is, uh, which is really fun. <laughs> Uh, but you know, even you, never mind even the, 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 child benefit thing, which I think, um, yeah, I think there's really valued arguments for that. Um, and, and again, you know, if the, if it was revenue neutral, just by getting rid of all of the, the stigmatized, uh, uh means tested stuff, you know, yeah. I, I, I just, I, I can't imagine that that wouldn't be a really amazing ad and it would be a perfect sort of addition, right? We get the freedom yeah. dividend passed that sort of, uh, you know, uh, freedom dividend one, one a, um, is where we could add some stuff like that. But just, it would it would change their lives. Like yeah, it and it's also, again, it's, it's very controlling. I mean, this stuff is very, it's limiting of choice. And it's it's like, if you look at WIC, like if you notice these stickers throughout the store, they're like a grocery store and you'll say like, you know, WIC approved and stuff on these. So it's like, you can right. buy that item, but you can't buy all these other items. You know, right. Including like, you know, diapers and, and you know, these kind of things. That's a, that's a major one. Like you, you don't get any diaper assistance. So you need cash. But then you look at like programs like TANF and stuff that's built for families. And, and that program was just a mess as far as how much revenue is actually going towards cash benefits and how those benefits are, are, are done. And um, like you're just money going to states to essentially lower their taxes on, on wealthier people. It's paying for like, uh, you know, the kids of people earning six figures that they can go to college. Like, and this stuff is meant for, people in poverty and their states are finding all sorts of ways to get around that. And it, all these programs are just, just so limiting and so, so ridiculously paternalistic and, and they're damaging. Like the, the effects of these conditions are damaging to people. It, it, you've seen it. This is a study of like the, the state programs. Like if you look at states where they have the most conditions versus the states with the, the fewest conditions and strings, you know, which is, it's also interesting to see that the ones with the most conditions have more African-Americans and ones with the fewest conditions have more white people. So it's like there's racism within the system, even though that's illegal to actually do that. It's like you get around that by having these states. So it's just, we want to get rid of as many of these conditions as possible. And, um, just another point I wanted to bring up too, as far as like uh, the ability for people to watch their own kids, there's a, there's another step there between there, between parents watching their own kids and like paying for their own kids. And it's like a, it's like a wheel setup. Um, when I say wheel setup, there's the ability for say five people to get together and each one agree that they'll take, you know, one day of, of the five day week. You know, so they'll watch everyone's kids. So one person will watch five kids on Monday and the next parent will watch all five kids on Tuesday. You know, so you go in the circle where each one is watching everyone. And that could be a totally unpaid thing again as well because everyone's benefiting from it. Right. And so this is actually, this is an observed effect from basically experiments where you see this wheel kind of take over um, uh, one of the popular ones that we've seen multiple times is where people will uh, pool their basic incomes together so that you can create a wheel of large capital grants. So you say, all right, uh, I'm not going to take my $1,000 this month, um, and I'll set I'll wait you know, it's for six months from now, and then yeah. I'll get you know, $6,000 instead of $1,000. So by going around this circle. And that's a really interesting, totally self-motivated, you know, it, 
if you're like if you're a capitalist you can look at this and go well there you go these are people making their own decisions right Money now they actually have capital yeah yeah <laughs> so they're right. they're figuring out ways of creating capital so they can use that and then on the other side if you're looking from the left and you're like well we want more like worker co-ops and stuff and more democracy in the workplace and these things and you've got people democratically making these decisions together that they would prevented from doing otherwise. So it's just, it's really interesting to see that there's these examples of, of, of people immediately getting together in ways that they wouldn't have done otherwise with basic income. Yeah, like uh, I think Rio's uh, computer must have just died or something like that, but uh, I think he just messaged me. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like he, he would respond a lot to that just, just from our previous conversations, like the ability to, you know, he thinks a lot about, and I, I love talking to conservatives that feel this way, like, you know, having experienced what it feels like to be sort of part of the investment class. Uh, uh, and, you know, I, I am becoming that he has been for a long time. Uh, but like, you just, you get a sense of what that's like, right? Like to, to the point where you were talking about initially about the, the, just the different, um, you know, emotional context or human context of being able to wake up in the morning and decide what to do instead of it being decided for you because you don't want to starve to death. It's like yeah. an epic shift. Like it's, it's an unbelievably, uh, it's an unbelievably big deal. So then to have groups of people have that same capital, um, you know, I think about that all the time and I really wish more people would imagine what that's going to be like. I think, uh, Yang has talked about, um, you know, airdropping $60 million into a town that just lost its one factory as an example, right? Giving everybody a thousand dollars a month. Um, and it saves towns, like saves them period. End of discussion. Like it literally means that the property values aren't going to necessarily tank. The coffee shop isn't going to, uh, isn't going to close. The barber still has a job. You know, like it just, it, it, it has such a profound, uh, effect on the entire economy that it, it's completely ridiculous. Yeah. So one of the re- one of the things that I really have loved about conservatives getting into this discussion, thanks to like the Joe Rogan appearance and, and starting to support Yang, is that there's so much more uh, understanding of just what a big deal basic income would have on rural areas, like small town USA. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I've talked about this for years but like it's so great to to have people really thinking like oh my gosh how how big would that be for for mom and pop stores across the country to be able to actually survive now instead of being put under by amazon and and the walmarts and stuff and right be able to make that choice and instead of these economies drying up for people to actually you know for these stores to to function and people to be able to go to those stores people being able to start their own stores and it's just it's the entrepreneurship effect is is a huge impact of, of basic income that um is i think is especially big at the the small town rural area kind of focus yeah in uh, you know i'm in uh, pasco county oh there he is uh, i'm in uh, pasco county florida one of the biggest sort of uh, you know, embarrassing issues here is just the the, the epic level of uh, uh, of homelessness, right? Uh, so we talk about it a lot. The uh, Republicans that run this county don't want to talk about that at all because their developing uh, donors uh, don't care. <laughs> it's not it's not in their in their purview to care. Uh, and so we keep trying to like eke out you know little little uh, uh, benefits or whatever. Except we're trying to fix the entire society by by lifting these people out of abject poverty, right? Um, their solution is to just uh, uh, literally to bust them into other counties because uh, that'll yeah. fix it. Um, I, I, I just, you know, thinking about how much of an effect this would have on a family like my brother's is, is really, really epic. But it would just absolutely destroy homelessness full stop. 
right? Like the, the idea that you're going to, without any means test whatsoever, um, you know, airdrop a thousand dollars a month into people that are living out of a freaking tent. Is it necessarily going to get them a home or do the whatever? Like it, it isn't necessarily going to do any of that stuff, but suddenly they aren't desperate of starving to death tomorrow. Right. It just, it's yeah. huge. Yeah. So, so if you look at, um, you know, the, typical ways of going about housing assistance. Uh, like HUD did a study on this uh, a few years ago. It's a very big study. And it didn't really get that much attention, but I thought it was a pretty big deal. And so the, the, they compared your your Section 8 housing vouchers versus like, um, you know, uh, actual housing compared to like temporary shelters and these things. And found that the if you wanted to, to find like the, the best impact on – on you know, like long term, getting people off the streets, uh, housing vouchers were the way to go. They're most efficient, most effective means. And um, housing vouchers themselves are very limited. So this is a lot. Of, there's a lot of details in the existing system that people don't really realize. So I want to emphasize that Section Eight housing vouchers are not just like the equivalent of cash that you can use for housing. You know, it, you only people who accept them will accept them. So there's particular neighborhoods and particular areas in, in cities that you can use these vouchers at. And not only that, but there's like huge waiting lists uh, for these vouchers as well. So like not everybody who qualifies for them getting them. In fact, if you look at across the US, um, if you look at those in, in poverty who who should qualify for housing assistance, only a quarter of those people are getting it. So three quarters of people in poverty who qualify for housing assistance get nothing. Yeah. And so that's like this, it's a very clear example of just how many holes are in our existing system and how many people are falling through it. And of course, even those who are caught in this like net that we have, those one in every four people, then they're being told, okay, so you can live here or here <laughs> and, and that's right. it. Like they, they cannot use that as cash that they could use anywhere. So if, if you look even at the people getting assistance right now and you're just cashing that out and making sure that they get cash instead of these vouchers, then suddenly they can live anywhere and no one you know, can stop them from doing that. They, it's just like cash, there, there's no longer any limits. And so you know, we're not only decreasing homelessness with basic income in a way that would just be dramatic, yep. we're also increasing even those who are getting assistance, their ability to live where they want to live and instead of being limited to places that they have to live right now and are in conditions that they have to live. So it's it's important, I think, on both sides to see that that you know it, it's something that the the left doesn't doesn't look at this enough, and they're so concerned about you know the loss of benefits and you know saying that oh Yang wants to destroy the safety net and da 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 da, and it's like well we there needs to be more understanding of what the safety net is, what the right. ramifications and effects are of that safety net. And just how much this would improve that, even if you're not, even if you're not improving the monetary value, you know, even if someone's getting a thousand dollars in housing assistance right now, and then suddenly they can start getting a thousand dollars of cash, they that's would a very big difference for yep. them. Yeah, hundred percent. 
Yeah. And again, it's opt in, right? So if they, if they don't want to do it, they don't need to do it. But here's the thing, I, you know, we would see them do it. It's like the, you know, the, the public option in, uh, in healthcare, there's a reason why people are going to flood to it and not because it's worse, right? Like, you know, I think that uh, uh, is a really, really good point. Rio, glad you're back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I guess the, uh, the connection here in Garmisch Park and Kirk in Germany wasn't as good as I thought. Oh, oh, just say that name one more time. Say the name Garmisch, one more time. Garmisch Partenkirchen. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So I, I heard, I heard the tail end of that thing about uh, uh, housing. That's yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's actually much better for capitalism when people can spend the money can choose to live where they want to live. That's better for the, it frees the market up so that there's actually more competition, which is good as well. Oh, absolutely. And so if you look at from the, the market too, so I would say the, the, the way that the market works is, is fundamentally flawed and it's a, in its inability to to determine the difference between a lack of money and a lack of demand. So if you have a lack of money and so someone, a customer isn't buying something, then the market can't tell if they're not buying it because they don't want it or they're not buying it because they don't have enough money to buy it. And so if you make sure that every market participant has enough money, it's like some amount of money, then you, every market will be able to determine that, hey, this is a cleaner signal because we know that they have enough money. And so therefore if they're not buying it then they don't want it. And that's the only reason it's, it's not because they don't have enough money. So then if you apply that to housing, then you can see that, that there's a lot of, there's a lot of demand obviously for housing that people want that, but you're not going to cater to a market where you don't know if they're going to be able to afford it. Like why would you as a landlord rent to someone, that, you know, who knows if they're going to have a job uh, two months from now. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot more, there's a lot more fluctuation of income at the bottom. Things can happen. You can lose your job a lot easier. Uh, it, why would you provide housing for this? So the market exists right now. Whenever, like, new housing is created, it's more upper market stuff. And, and that's still a good thing because by expanding supply, and people move into that, then you free up the rest of the existing supply and then people can move into that. So it's not bad that they're creating these, these upper middle kind of market kind of stuff, but it's still distortionary to the market because there of course is, de is a demand for affordable housing, but you're not meeting that demand. So I think that, that an effect of basic income, another effect would be that you could effectively create like a, a Henry Ford kind of person for housing where it, for those who are familiar with Henry Ford, he wanted to make the Model T cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Mm -hmm. His whole goal was that he wanted as many people to be able to afford this as possible. And so he would just organize everything. He was an incredible example of vertical integration to be able, he was basically turning dirt into cars at one point, just this ginormous assembly line that just went all the way from resources to cars. And because of that, he was able to make a very affordable car. And if, if there's someone, I think there's going to be a very smart person out there who suddenly recognizes that everyone has a guaranteed amount of money for housing, right. and they're going to want to keep as much of that as possible. So if you can figure out a way to house people for you know, $333 a month, so like a third of their income, and if you make that affordable and, and, and nice enough for them people to choose that, you can make bank on that because the same reason Ford did so well. He became a you know a billionaire yeah. off the ability to sell cheap cars. So right. 
there's a market not being catered to right now. Yeah, you you might have to do that kind of in the middle of nowhere. But the nice thing about the UBI also is if people if people need to move, either because they're looking for better employment opportunities or because they want to go to less expensive housing, they'll actually have the ability to do that now too. Yeah. The thing that struck out at me that I don't think I've ever thought about before in the 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 idea that. Um, as a real estate developer or as you know, somebody, somebody who's providing housing, rental, whatever, right? You are disincentivized to talk to poor people exactly because they are, it, it is not stable. You're going right. to have to you know, factor in a certain amount of, uh, of time, income, you know, uh, pain and suffering into you know, chasing people that might not uh, have a job or might not whatever. And suddenly, you know, to, to your point, you know everybody's getting $1,000 a month. Uh, you know, it, you're, you're absolutely incentivized to have the, the, the best possible thing that you can make for $333 a month. Um, mm-hmm. because you know, they're going to get it and you want to, and there will then be a massive amount of competition in that space where right. there is arguably is none right now. Right. Right? And, it, and it would cease to be the middle of nowhere anymore because now all these other people would be living there. It would be a little community. I'm telling you, man, like yeah. as a, like when I was learning how to play guitar, I literally lived in a bus that I bought in the Arctic. Right. And I would probably do that again. Cause that was fun, but I was <laughs> super lucky. I like, it was a weird, it was a weird, uh, conflagration of events, but uh, you know, when, when uh, I moved down to, uh, to Edmonton, started a band doing that whole stupid hippie thing, wasn't stupid, it was really fun. Uh, but you know, I, I ended up living in a house, uh, with, uh, you know, like eight other people at one point, it was completely ridiculous and some of the best times of my entire life. So I can absolutely see this thing where, where, you know, you could, and people are already talking about like pod housing and different things that are not a bad thing. Right. Yeah. And, and it really can be this situation where there would then be a bubbling, uh, uh, amount of competition in that space to provide really, really cool things. Because again, you're going to have, to Rio's point, you're going to have the ability then to, to, to vote with your feet, to have uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, an effect on, on what people are producing and how they're producing it now that they're actually incentivized to do it in a way because they know that the market is actually stable. Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, I, it, to, to bring uh, entrepreneurship into this uh, too, as far as like creating the ability to do something that doesn't exist right now, um, yeah, I, I think a really interesting thing to think about is, is startups and how, you know, so much of like startup revenue is just to figure out, well, you, you people need money to live. And so you've got to come up with, with enough money so that everyone who's part of this startup can actually focus on the startup. And so if, if everybody's base needs are already covered, then suddenly you don't have to obtain all of that capital that you would otherwise have to obtain. You would still need capital for whatever it is that you're focused on, but you're not focused on covering the, the, what you need in order to pay your employees enough so them to focus on that stuff. And then you've, you can create the situation where, where suddenly you, you can give people the, the choice that doesn't exist right now saying that, okay, 10 of us get together and we got this great idea. And we're going to work on this together and create this new business or product. And we don't have to worry about profitability um, like we would otherwise. And so we can, we can really focus on this and making sure that it works. And two years from now, if it ends up turning a profit, great. And as part of this saying, all right, whereas before I would have done this for a salary, I would say, well, I want a cut of the shares, you know, percentage after the fact when it starts turning profitable. And so, like that would be a huge thing where suddenly instead of earning, you know, $50,000 a year or something um, and then not getting a cut, then people are working for free 
for a couple years and then bam, they all get like, you know, the equivalent of, of however many shares and, and now they're actually somewhat wealthy now instead of um, where the, before they would have been just doing wage labor. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really interesting thing to think about too, is again, people getting together and, and having new options that didn't exist before. Yeah, I, I completely and totally agree. Okay, so we just, uh, we've already stolen over an hour of your time. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for, for investing that with us. It, uh, having your perspective on this stuff is, uh, is real cool. Uh, but the R- the ROI is going to be huge. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. For, 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 uh, for everybody, for all of humanity, for frick's sake. Um, so what's, what's one thought that you would like to, to leave our uh, audience with uh, moving forward? Sure. So I think the, the most important thought is, is also kind of a way of, of defining basic income uh, because basic income is when you get right down to it, it's not money. It's uh, what it will enable you to do. So my question for everybody is to think, you know, what is it that you're not doing right now because you aren't starting each month with an unconditional basic income? You know, if you can, if you can think about that one thing or multiple things that, that you're not doing right now that you really want to be doing, then really that's what basic income is. And that's why you should really start to push for it. Like the rest of us. I like it. Sounds good. Uh, Rio, do you want to uh, add anything before we, uh, before we close out? No, uh, I, I, um, I guess I, I guess I, I guess I would just say that in our little disagreement um, about the uh, children's uh, allowance, as you called it, um, it, yeah, well, okay. So, in the spirit of compromise, I would be willing to go along with that rather than throw the whole thing out. Uh, <laughs> All right. Exactly, well, that's that's the thing too. Is you know, a lot of times, uh, you know people make the perfect, the enemy of the good. Um, and that's part of the reason compromise doesn't happen. Um, you know, if I don't get everything that I want, you see this, you know, on both extremes, if I don't get everything that I want, then I, then, then forget it, throw it all out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, let's, let's go ahead and, uh, come. Yes. Please everybody just vote for Andrew Yang. (laughs) I don't agree with all of his policies. I don't agree with all of his policies. Right. Best option. And that's kind of, that's just pragmatically how you have to, to make your decisions in a democracy or how, how we should, that's for sure. It, it, you know, just eat, if the only thing we, we uh, leave people with is an option outside of uh, sort of rampant tribalism, I think uh, we will have done all right. Yeah. And I, I guess I what, just one more thing too, because uh, I, I always want to root this stuff in, in evidence and in reality and, and, and try to, to avoid like ideological positions. So when it comes to, you know, uh, I'm focused on making sure that every child has enough resources that they're able to, um, you know, not be pulled down by poverty. They're able to reach their full potential. And, you know, it's, it's very expensive. Uh, you know, child poverty costs us, you know, over a trillion dollars per year. And the cost of eliminating child poverty you know, is far below that. And, you know, I just want to focus on saying that, you know, if, if increasing income sufficiently uh, decreases poverty, decreases inequality, decreases stress of parents, increases educational outcomes, and is effectively an ROI of $7 for every $1 spent eliminating child poverty, then what I care about is making sure that no child exists in poverty. And so if, if, we have an, if we have a viewpoint that says, well, you know, it's the decision of the parent and, you know, the parent only gets this much. And so I'm sorry, 
that this kid will have to be raised in poverty, you know, just have to live with it. Then again, I'm focused on the actual results and it's, it's the evidence behind it that I, that I really want to focus on. And because child poverty is so, so expensive that I don't care. I want to make sure everyone reaches their potential. Um, Cause again, another way of, um, uh, and really good argument for basic income too is what I call the Einstein cost, where if there's just one person, just one person that is not effectively the next Einstein because they're not mm -hmm. receiving sufficient resources, then just think of like how different the world would be if Einstein had never existed. Like what's the monetary cost of not having Einstein's existence? You know, it's, it's, I, I don't even know how to calculate that because everything that, that he did affected so much of our technology and our society. Mm -hmm. So if we, if we can eliminate that and make sure that there is no Einstein cost, that every Einstein potential is able to become that, reach that potential, then all of us are just hugely better off. And I don't care about the ideologies that would you know, prevent that from happening because of something else. It's like, no, the overwhelming thing is that Einstein cost, let's make sure that doesn't happen because we want humanity to be better off. Humanity first. <laughs> Nailed it. And the math, I mean, that really, at, at the end of the day, that you know, even for people that, that you know, if, if your mindset is, hey, you know, I, why should I be taking care of the kids of other people? That, I mean, that's the perfect workaround. I mean, the, 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 you know, if, if we educate an extra million people at whatever the cost is and only, only one of them is an Einstein level of intelligence um, and at much lesser levels, a hundred thousand of them might be producing things that have never been seen uh, before in sure. the world. We are all just incalculably richer for it. Um, right. And, you know, it, and, and as a, a back end result, you end child poverty. Oops. I mean, that's, you know, what are you, that's <laughs> right, right. We're, we're all better off when we're all better off. It's just a, a simple way of, of thinking about this. And, yeah. and, uh, you know, that's, let's create the conditions where, where humanity is able to flourish. Um, you know, that's what I'm really interested in. Absolutely. All right. Scott Sentence, thank you so much for, uh, uh, for joining us. We appreciate this uh, a ton. Um, and uh, I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll see you fighting the good fight on, uh, on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, good luck with uh, the rest of your show and, and all the episodes that you've got uh, still coming and planning. And uh, yeah, I hope, hope you expand and, and find a, a big audience. Thanks, man. I mean, you know, Yang's, uh, the Yang gang is exploding. We are, uh, we are a tight group. So there you go. <laughs> yep. Yep. Another reason for basic right. income, rallying people together. Uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> Thanks, brother. Take care. Ciao. Thank you very much for listening to the Moving Forward podcast. Uh, we are so excited to be bringing this to you, and we're so excited about the uh, the awesome community, the Yang Gang that's growing up around the candidacy uh, of Andrew Yang. Uh, if you could, please tag us on Twitter with the hashtag Moving Forward Pod, and uh, find and join the Moving Forward podcast uh, group on Facebook. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.